Hi listeners, and welcome to the True Crime Weekly Podcast, a podcast that is based in San Diego and hosted by me, Elena Trujillo, and my producer, Jose Fernandez. This is a podcast where I will be bringing you stories of murders, infamous cases, and unsolved mysteries. And in this week's episode, I want to tell you about the night when Austin lost its innocence. This is the unsolved story of the yogurt shop murders. On a Friday night in December of 1991, 17-year-old Jennifer Harbison and 17-year-old Eliza Thomas were working the closing shift at the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt. It has been said that after they finished their shift, they were going to have a sleepover with Jennifer's younger sister, 15-year-old Sarah Harbison, and her friend, 13-year-old Amy Ayers. The four girls had met and become friends because they all share the same love and passion for animals. They had met while participating in a program named Future Farmers of America. 15-year-old Sarah and 13-year-old Amy had spent the day at the North Cross Mall and were waiting for Jennifer and Eliza to finish their shift at the yogurt shop so that they can start their sleepover. After Sarah and Amy finished being at the mall, they headed over to help Jennifer and Eliza close the shop. And I can only assume that Sarah and Amy probably figured, let's go help them because the sooner they close the yoga shop, the sooner that they can head back to Sarah and Jennifer's house so they can start their sleepover. And, you know, I can relate to that. I remember at Krispy Kreme, we used to always have our friends head over and help us close if we were on the closing shift. Um, so just so we can get off sooner. So I can only imagine how excited they were about the sleepover. And, you know, it's just so heartbreaking to think that they never got a chance to do whatever it was that they had planned, whether it was to watch a movie or pop some popcorn or eat chips, you know, it's just, it's just so sad, yeah, you know. Just have some good instant fun, something you're looking forward to. Yeah, it's just, it's heartbreaking. Daryl Croft was a former police officer who in 1991 ran a security company and he visited the shop at around 10 p.m. He was there to buy yogurt for himself and two friends and as he stood in line, he was approached by a man wearing a military-style green jacket. The man was loitering in the customer line, ushering other customers to order ahead of him. And when Daryl came in, the man asked him if he was a cop. And right away, he offered Daryl to pass him in line. But Daryl refused. And when the man finally approached the counter, he only ordered a soda. Which, you know, it's odd because you are at a yogurt shop. So for you yeah, to... Yeah, why would you just get a soda? Right, that's just odd. And but... he goes and asks a random person at a shop, Hey, are you a cop? Yeah, I know, right? Is Isn't that, that weird? Like, right away, red flags being thrown all over the place, right? So, after he paid, he moved around the counter and headed to the back of the store. So, Daryl thought that that was just another thing that was odd, and he asked Eliza Thomas where he was going. And Eliza, she was a store shift supervisor, and she was the one operating the register that night. And she told Daryl that she had allowed him to go to the back to use the restroom. Hmm. 
So feeling uneasy about the situation, Daryl hung around for a few more minutes, but the man never returned from the back of the room and eventually Daryl would leave the shop. A married couple was at the shop during this time as well and they saw two men sitting at the booth drinking a soda. And once again, you know, they thought that was odd because they weren't eating yogurt. And after all, I mean, you're at a yogurt shop. Right. Um, just go to <laughs> get a Slurpee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, so the wife would tell her husband that the men made her feel uneasy. So the couple left home, left to go home now leaving the girls alone with those two strange men. And, you know, I can't help but think, what if the couple would have said something to the girls? You know, or what if Daryl would have stuck around a little bit longer? Or what if he would have gone back and knocked on the bathroom door and, you know, pretending like he needed to use it and see what was taking so long? Um, You know, would any of that have made a difference? It's just... I don't know. I, I think it's sad how, you know, nowadays we're born to be polite and, you know, not say anything when things kind of feel odd, you know, instead of asking questions or, you know, I, I don't know. Like I said, maybe if they would have said something to the girls, maybe. Yeah. Even with that, somebody that's that suspicious. Right. Like odd, maybe the outcome would have been different. But, you know, we just, we would never know. The two men remained at the yoga shop after the doors had been locked and the shop had closed. After all, it was common practice to close up 10 minutes before 11 and leaving one door unlocked or, you know, having, I don't know if you've seen it, but I know at Krispy Kreme, we used to lock all the doors, but the key was left in the door, so an employee had to come and unlock yeah, it for you. Yeah, you often in a lot of small shops. Right. Yeah, so yeah. that was, that like was the, coming. Hey, take the hint. We're closed, <laughs> yeah. and we're not taking any customers. <laughs> yeah, I know. As the Krispy Kreme employees, we used to hate it when people used to linger around. Mm-hmm. Then, just before midnight, Austin police officer Troy Gay noticed some um, smoke coming from the strip mall while he was out on patrol. And it didn't take long for firefighters to arrive at the I Can't Believe It's Not Yoga Shop. And after putting out the fire, they discovered a horrific scene inside the shop. Oh no, this is going to be bad. Mm-hmm. Fire Lieutenant Rene Hector Garza and Firefighter David DeVoe went into the yoga shop after the flames had been put out with flashlights in hand when all of a sudden... They spotted a foot, then an arm, then a body. Oh, my God. They had found four bodies. The bodies of Jennifer, Amy, Eliza, and Sarah. They were burned, naked, and bound with their own clothes. Their legs were separated, and they had been shot in the head which during the investigation it was determined that the girls had been shot with a 22 caliber handgun and the bodies of sarah harbison and eliza thomas had been stacked on top of each other 
the bodies were burned beyond recognition. That's horrific. Mm -hmm. Right. Except for one body. The body of the youngest, Amy Ayers. Amy had been sexually assaulted, which was no surprise to investigators as they had found an ice cream scoop between the legs of one of the bodies. And it said that at least two out of the four girls had been raped. The scene was so gruesome that not even their race was obvious. It was said that the fire was so intense that while trying to put out the fire, firefighters had destroyed a lot of the evidence. It is said that the killer or killers had collected napkins and other flammable objects from around the shop and doused those items with lighter fluid before lighting the shop on fire and fleeing the scene. Due to the lack of evidence that was left, the detectives would have a hard time trying to figure out a motive. And at first, detectives thought that maybe it was robbery gone wrong because they had reason to believe that at 11.03 p.m., a no-sell tag had been rung up, meaning the cash register was open However, they found that there was only $540 missing from the cash register. And the bank bag that was underneath the cash register with all the money inside, that was left untouched. That didn't get burnt down in the fire? Mm -mm. Mm. Yeah. So eight days after the murders, lead detectives John Jones and Mike Huckabee would pick up a 16-year-old Maurice Pierce. And Maurice Pierce had been seen at the North Cross Mall with a gun the same night that Sarah and Amy were hanging out before they headed to the yoga shop. So James and Huckabee questioned Maurice along with his three other friends that he had been seen with that night at the mall. So the three other boys, that was Michael Scott, Robert Springsteen, and Forrest Wellborn. The boys were later dismissed when they tested the gun and ballistics showed that it was not a match to the murder weapon in the yoga shop murders. So investigators had collected fingerprints and hair from the crime scene and neither one of those items were able to get tracked back to those four boys. Mm-hmm. But this didn't slow down the investigation. Instead, it made things harder for Jones and Huckabee. Jones said that in an interview that he did with 48 Hours called Innocence Lost, the Yorkshire murders, that they would get flooded with the amount of tips that were coming in and with the amount of suspects they had. Jones said in this interview that at one point they had a total of 342 suspects. 342? 342. Which is an insane amount. Yeah, that's huge. I didn't even start. Right. So, Jones even said in an interview that people were walking into the police station and confessing and bragging about the murders, but then later they would roll those confessions out as false or during the questioning some of these people eventually would break and say that they were lying. So with these people that are wasting 
time mm -hmm. for whatever crazy reason you'd say that mm -hmm. do they get any punishment i don't think so no i don't um, have time to deal with that but, i know i mean, that's I mean 342 i mean i would hope that they would get some sort of like fine or something but yeah yeah i don't know that they did jones and huckabee didn't have much to go on but then they even looked into serial killers and one in particular named kenneth allen mcduff and kenneth allen mcduff was a serial killer in texas and get this the day of his execution he had confessed to the yoga shop murders However, after comparing the serial killer's hair and fingerprints with those collected from the crime scene, it was determined that it wasn't a match. Are you kidding? Yeah. And he was ruled out from being, you know, the killer. What's up with that? You hear that often with serial killers. Mm -hmm. like, they're trying to increase their counts or something. Like yeah. Well, in this case, it was said that Alan was trying to postpone his execution, but... It didn't work. He was still executed on the day that he was supposed to. Yeah, that makes sense. That's, that is a reasonable motive. Right. That does make sense. Mm hmm Okay, so after this, the case went cold. And eight years had passed, and the lead detectives, Jones and Huckabee, had been taken off the case. And new detectives were now looking at the girls' murders. Then, on... October 6, 1999, the new detectives make an arrest for the murders. They arrest four men that are now in their 20s. They arrest 24-year-old Robert Burns Springsteen, 25-year-old Michael James Scott, 24-year-old Maurice Pierce, and 23-year-old Forrest Wellborn. The four men had been brought into custody and had been interrogated. For what I read, it was a total of 20 hours by detectives Robert Merrill and Hector Polanco. 20 hours. 20 hours. A total of 20 hours. So it wasn't 20 hours straight, but it was... Regardless, that's a lot of time. Right. So after long hours of questioning, Michael Scott along with Robert Springsteen, confessed to the killings and the rape of at least one of the girls. So the story that they gave the police was that the four men had planned to rob the yoga shop, and they said that Scott and Maurice entered the yoga shop while Forrest was sitting outside, and he was pretty much the lookout. However, they said that something went wrong and that the girls had been killed. Oh. Mm -hmm. So, with the confessions of Michael and Robert, the police arrested them and tried them separately for the murders, and they were found guilty of capital murder. Robert Springsteen was given the death penalty for the murders, and Michael Scott was given 99 years in prison. Yeah, those are steep. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. What should happen? So... The authorities had tried to indict Robert Wellborn for the murders twice. However, due to the lack of evidence linking him to the crime, all charges against him were dropped. Police believed that Maurice Pierce was the mastermind behind the murders. However, 
also due to the lack of evidence they were never able to charge him with the murders and i also read in an article in the austin chronicle titled peer shooting still about four murders written by jordan smith and i believe the article was published on december 31st of 2010. Um, the article stated that on december 23rd 2010 Maurice had been stopped for running a stop sign at around 10.54 p.m. And the article stated that Maurice initially pulled over. However, he got out of this car and fled on foot. One police officer followed Maurice by car and another police officer, a five-year veteran officer, his name was Frank Wilson, took off running after Maurice on foot. The article said that Frank caught up to Maurice and they struggled a little bit. And during the struggle, Frank tried to tase Maurice. However, allegedly Maurice grabbed a knife from Frank's belt and cut Frank's throat. And at that point, Frank was able to draw his gun and shoot Maurice. The article said that after Maurice was shot, he was able to still run off. However, he was later found dead nearby. Mm -hmm. oh. Isn't that crazy? It is. I mean, it just sounds... I mean, they weren't ever, ever able to charge him for the murders of the four girls, but I almost feel like that alone is at least some sort of justice, you know? Yeah. But um, then in 2009, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals overturned the convictions of Robert Springsteen and Michael Scott. The court had stated that both of the men's um, Sixth Amendment right had been violated. Oh, wow. Michael's confession had been used against Robert, but Michael didn't testify in court, so therefore um, they couldn't. He couldn't be cross-examined by Robert's attorney, and vice versa. And although the two men were not found innocent, the judge released them both pending possible retrials. And just like that. Released. Just like that. And obviously, as you can imagine, this was a devastating blow to both to the families of the four girls. Oh, right. As you know, the family is still I mean, I until now they still believe that those four men are guilty for murdering their girls. And in that 48-hour interview that I saw, one of the girl's moms, um, she said something that it, like, it really hit home for me. She said, and I quote, their rights were violated while well, our girls were killed. And that, to me, I was like, wow, you know, it's, it's true. And what do, you, what do you say to that, you know? Right. When they overturn their convictions and it's like, oh, I'm sorry, their Sixth Amendment was violated. And it's like, excuse me? Yep, there's nothing we can do. Yeah, and it's like, excuse me, well, you know, I'm never going to get my daughter back, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, but another thing that I found interesting about the case is that, you know, the original detective, Jones, you know, he was at the scene the day of the murders. And he actually never believed that those four men were the ones that committed the murder. Really? So who does he think did it? So, well, 
You see, police interviewed a total of 52 customers who visited the yogurt shop on that night of the murder. Mm -hmm. And some witnesses placed two strange men sitting at a booth near the cash register drinking a soda. And witnesses described that they look like they weren't living anytime soon. And after the yogurt shop closed and everyone else had left, and until this day, no one is able to identify those two men. Witnesses have given a description of those men as one of them having a lighter, lighter colored hair, maybe dirty blonde, and is about five foot six, and maybe in his late 20s, early 30s. And the other man is described as a bigger man. They were both wearing bigger coats. One man was wearing a green military style jacket, and the other had a black jacket. And till this day, no one has been able to identify those two men. So Jones believes that those are the two men who committed the murders. And it's questioned if robbery was really even the motive. Since there wasn't a big amount of money that was taken from the cash register, it's thought that the murders were sexually motivated and that the money was taken only as an after, afterthought. Mm -hmm. So some people believe that maybe Sarah and Amy were followed from the mall to the yoga shop. No, oh, that's horrible. Mm -hmm. so, um, so yeah, so Jones believes that those two men that have never been identified, he, he thinks that those are the men that are responsible for the murders not these four men and you know it seems like the key to solving this case is by linking the dna evidence that was found at the scene with the two men that were seen by witnesses um lingering around the yoga shop after it closed but as of today the retrials of robert and michael have been placed on hold due to the DNA evidence not matching either Robert or Michael. Really? Mm-hmm. So the yogurt shop is now a nail salon, and a plaque was placed in a parking lot under an oak tree, memorializing Jennifer Harvison, Sarah Harvison, Amy Ayers, and Eliza Thomas. And the plaque also serves as a reminder to everyone that passes by the plaque that justice is still not served for those four girls. It's so sad. So I just told you about an open case that's still till now open in Texas. Um, but as promised every week, I like to also bring a local San Diego case. And this week I want to tell you about the unsolved murder of Larry Richard Rivers. San Diego County Crime Stoppers and investigators from the National City Police Department are asking for the public's help in identifying and locating the suspect or suspects responsible for the murder of 55-year-old Larry Richard, nicknamed Ricky Rivers. On April 8th, 2018, at approximately 4.52 a.m., National City Police Department officers responded to the 
100th block of North Highland Avenue regarding a report of gunshots heard in the area. Officers arrived on the scene and found Larry Richard Ricky Rivers suffering from a gunshot wound. Paramedics arrived on the scene and transported Rivers to a local hospital where he was pronounced deceased. Anyone with information about this murder is asked to call the National City Police Department or contact your local Crime Stoppers Anonymous tip line. And remember, you can help bring closure to this family. Only you can make a difference and you don't have to worry about anybody knowing that you were the one that gave the tip that brought this closure to the family. If you want to look at pictures and want more information on the cases we cover, you can head over to truecrimeweeklypodcast.com. You can also follow us on Instagram on podcast True Crime Weekly. And I would truly love it and appreciate it if you would leave a five-star review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. The only way that people find out about us is through subscribers and reviews. Thanks for listening.